Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 32, and I'm reading from the New International Version. So they, Jesus and his disciples, went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have, he asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was five thousand. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw his disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout the whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak. And all who, were, all who touched him were healed. Last week, we began by asking the question, who is Jesus, and answering it with Mark's first response, which is this, Jesus is the new Moses. We're going to talk today about Jesus as the new Joshua. There are some who get so fixated on the world to come, on heaven, on eternal life, on what is going to be out there one day, that we take our eye off the ball in this world. That we act as though we're just biding our time in this place. That this is just some sort of a temporary stopover. It doesn't really matter, so who cares about it? Let's just get through it and get to what really matters, heaven. There are probably a number of Christians who live in that way. And so, for those who are concerned about that, they would say that Christianity has to war against escapism. The idea that what we do here doesn't matter because of heaven. Christianity does have some of those escapist tendencies. But the question is, what does the ministry of Jesus tell us about the world to come and tell us about the world in which we find ourselves right now? How do the two meet? What are our responsibilities here? And how does what's going to happen in the new heaven and the new earth, how is that supposed to affect our lives today? I think Mark gets at that and Jesus gets at that in this episode through this correlation with Joshua. Jesus is the new Joshua. Now, where Joshua shows up in this story may not be as clear as Moses. 
but it's hidden there in a little detail that I need to explain thoroughly in order just to get us to where we can talk about Joshua. And it's this detail that after the meal was finished, they picked up 12 baskets of extra food. Why? Did they pick up, did Jesus overshoot the mark? What does the excess mean? Is there any way that we can go back into Israelite history and better understand why there were 12 baskets of food left over at the end of this meal? Was it just to show the largesse of the kingdom that there's going to be more than enough for everybody? Is that what it's all about? Is it this idea that a hospitable person in Jesus' day would have always provided more food than necessary so that people would never ask for more and not have it? Some of you, when you do dinner parties, you do the same thing. You make sure there's always excessive food because you'd hate to be the host, right? That has to say, I'm sorry, we're all out when someone asks for seconds. Is that what it's about? I think it's about something different. And it relates to this correlation that Mark has drawn through this whole story with manna in the wilderness. Manna, you were never allowed to have extra, according to the law of Moses, according to the stories that we have in Numbers. Some people tried the first day they tasted it to gather extra because they weren't sure that there would be any the next day. And what they found was the next morning after they had done that, the manna was all maggoty and full of garbage and had begun to rot already. Uh, God accelerated the process. And we're told in the book of Numbers that one of the reasons he was doing that was so that they would, rem- they would be reminded that they needed every day for God to provide. This figures into Jesus' prayer, right? Give us this day our daily bread. Not tomorrow's bread. Our daily bread. That's tied to the manna in the wilderness. But one day out of the week... On Friday, they could, they could collect double because they were not allowed to harvest manna on the Sabbath. And that manna, miraculously, every seventh day would last for two days instead of the one day that all the other stuff lasted so that they could have a Sabbath rest of God. So we have Jesus feeding the people in the wilderness with manna from heaven. And there are 12 baskets of extra collected. What does that mean? The Sabbath is coming. The Sabbath is coming. There'll be enough for tomorrow. Now, why does that matter and how does it connect with Joshua? Sabbath has a huge, rich tradition. It starts with creation. And when God creates the world in six days, he creates the universe and all of its component parts. Then on the seventh day, when all his work is done, he sets back and he looks at it and he says it's very good. And he rests on that seventh day. And that's the beginning of the Sabbath for the Jewish people. And so they live that Sabbath out weekly by setting aside one day a week to worship. They live it out in the sequence of their tithing. So in the, in the nation of Israel, there were three different ties to my reading of Deuteronomy that they took. One was for the priests, one was for the poor, and one was for the family who tithed. And uh, the, every year, there was a different tithe in the cycle. And then they'd run that three-year cycle twice, which gives you six years. And on the seventh year, there was no tithe. That's a Sabbath to the Lord. And then if you took seven of those cycles, you would get 49 years. And in the 50th year, there was another Sabbath called the year of Jubilee. 
And on the year of Jubilee, all the debts the people had accumulated in those 49 years, all of if they had to sell their land because uh, they needed money or food or because they had fallen into debt, if they had accumulated debts for other reasons, whatever else, in the 50th year, according to the law, the Sabbath to God, the seventh of the sevens, they were to have all those debts canceled. All the land that they had sold was to be returned to the original family and forfeited by anyone who had purchased it. And everything was set back to zero, a Sabbath. Now, what's interesting in the other Gospels, not in Mark, when Jesus uh, declares his ministry in the, in the synagogue that first time and he reads the passage he reads from Isaiah, it's a passage about the year of Jubilee. And Jesus says, this is fulfilled in your presence. So there's a sense in which Jesus is coming to cancel all debts. So that is all tied up here in the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Because when Jesus makes more than necessary, providing enough for a Sabbath, he is telling us in no uncertain terms that his ministry will finally inaugurate the Sabbath rest of God. How does Joshua figure into that? Well, Joshua is a historical person. He was Moses' successor. He's the one who led the Israelites after Moses died, and he led the Israelites in conquest of the land of promise, the land of Canaan, the land that God had promised to, to Abraham and to his descendants. So Joshua is the one who leads him in. So he's a historical person. But he has almost mythical significance for the Jewish people beyond his historical uh, life. Joshua came to represent the one who led the Israelites from their wandering in the wilderness into God's promises. And so he becomes the one who brings the Sabbath rest of God. For one reason or another, when God speaks to the Israelites about going into the promised land, he, he tells them that they're going to enter his rest. When they first came out of Egypt and they went to enter the land of Canaan, they could have gone in right away. But the people didn't believe that they could conquer the inhabitants of that region because they were so powerful and the Israelites so small. So they doubted God's ability to bring them in. And so of the 12 spies who went to spy out the land, only two came back believing that victory was inevitable. The other 10 said, I think we should wait. And so because of that penalty on them, God condemned them to wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. That was their penalty. And what we find in Numbers is God saying these words, I swear today they will never enter my rest because of their failure to believe. They will never enter my rest. And so Joshua, when he finally brings the people into the land, originally they think God's promises are fulfilled. We're in the land of promise. God's Sabbath has come. And so the, Joshua is credited with being the one who brings them into the rest of God. Interestingly, Jesus' name and Joshua's name are the same. Jesus is Greek, Yesu. Joshua is Hebrew, Yehoshua. It's the same, same name. Now, Jesus indicates that whatever Joshua did to get them into the land of Canaan did not actually enter God's rest. And here is my final metaphor for you to hold in tension before we bring all this together. Somehow, when God created the world, he entered the seventh day, looked back on it all, and said, it is very good. And he blessed it, and he rested. But for some reason, the way the prophets of Israel have told the story, humanity still has not yet entered that seventh day. We're still somehow on day six, still somehow on this side of that finished work. Somehow we're still waiting to enter into his rest. And then Jesus comes 
And he does this miracle, and he provides enough food. The book of Hebrews is so impressed by this image of what Jesus has done. If you turn to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 16. Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. The writer is wrestling with the reality that a lot of Israelites were delivered from slavery in Egypt. But a lot of those who were delivered from slavery in Egypt didn't make it into the promised land. They died in the desert because of their lack of faith. And the writer of Hebrews is wrestling with that historical reality and asking, how does that apply to us today? And this is how he wrestles with it. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 16. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have obeyed enter that rest, just as God has said. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he's spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. And again, in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There's, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even, dividing, even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The writer of Hebrews is wrestling with all that stuff that I've put on the table. He's trying to figure out how creation and God's rest corresponds to the Israelites wandering in the wilderness and Joshua's delivering them into the promised land, yet the reality that they're still not really in God's rest and waiting for another day when God would finally bring them in and fulfill his promises. And the writer of Hebrews insists that happens with Jesus. And so does Mark. Because there were 12 baskets extra, the Sabbath was coming. What does this mean for us? And what about this escapist tendency of the church to diminish the necessity of doing good here because this is all destined for fire? Is that, is that what heaven is supposed to do? Well, what's interesting is all these themes I've been playing around with here, and I know it's a lot, they situate heaven as that seventh day and our present reality as the sixth day. So tell me this. Does what God did on the sixth day not matter on the seventh? Does what God did on the sixth day not matter on the seventh? 
What I want you to get a picture of, and this is a purely biblical understanding of eschatology, of end times, is that somehow the knowledge that heaven exists, that God has already gotten there, that it's not an if for heaven, or an if for justice, or an if for righteousness, or an if for healing, or an if for wholeness, or an if for the end of sadness and despair. Those are not ifs in the scriptures. Those are guarantees. So guaranteed that in the very first chapter of the Bible, it's already done. But those guarantees are not meant to invalidate what happens on day six. It's meant to bring meaning to what happens on day six. Everything we do matters because that day is in the future. No matter how dark this world gets and how empty our, our efforts seem to be, no matter how impossible it seems to be to bring goodness and righteousness into this world, we know it happens. Heaven, according to Revelation, comes down to earth. It happens, which means everything we do matters. And it works. God will make it so. And so we have this story of Jesus, where the, 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 the already and the not yet, as theologians like to say, are sandwiched together. He's talking about a future day that the disciples might have thought were right on the horizon, but in truth, we're still not there 2,000 years later. So it's out there. But he anticipates that day by bringing what's true on that day into reality on this day. We should, we should be able to work harder, more hopefully. We should be able to pray more thoroughly. We should be able to endure hardship. We should be able to try and help those who are poor and who are hurting and who are broken. We should be able to do that more, not less, because we know the seventh day is coming. Because we know that there will be an end to our fatigue and our efforts. Because we know that all this work we do is not in vain. Because God will bring righteousness. He will bring justice. He will calm our fears and he will soothe our tears. And yet some of us have misunderstood and we've thrown up our hands in despair and we've quit on this world because we're just waiting for the next one. But you see, that's claiming that what happens on day six has no bearing at all on what happens on day seven. Jesus is the new Joshua. He is here to deliver us into God's rest. But that journey begins here and now, not then and there. And it begins with each of us following the footsteps of Jesus, feeding the crowds. Here. Caring for hurts. Here. Being stewards of creation. Here. Trying to bring justice. Here. Because we know he will finish what we start. And one day we will live in a, a world fully realized. It's evil and wickedness that has a shelf life, not righteousness. It's sin and selfishness that will be burnt up in the fire of this place. Not goodness and kindness and love and forgiveness. Those are efforts that will last forever because of what Jesus has done for us. There is no good we can do here that will be consumed in the fire of what God brings at the end of time. It's the wickedness, it's the selfishness that will be consumed. 
Are we trying to bring the kingdom of God right here and now? Are we filled with hope knowing that our efforts could never go unsuccessful because heaven exists? Jesus reminds us that what he did for those 5,000 people on that day was in preparation for the Sabbath of God. Jesus feeding those people mattered because he was preparing them for the Sabbath. Your forgiveness matters. Your love matters. Your holiness matters. Your obedience matters. Your choices day to day on how to act on the road, how to respond to harms, how to work for your boss and whether or not you work diligently or you steal time by doing your other stuff. All that stuff is preparation for who we want to be. This is the Lord's Prayer. I'm going to invite you to stand. I'm going to read it. If you don't know it, I invite you to open your Bible to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to read verses 9 through 15. Matthew chapter 6. When his disciples said, Lord, how should we pray? This are Jesus' words. I hope they have greater meaning for you today as we're reminded that Jesus is the new Joshua who prepares his people for the Sabbath, rest of God. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Sabbath. Sabbath. Because we know that day is coming. This day matters.